0: to another episode of Fintech Recap. My name is Alex Johnson, and I am the creator of the Fintech Takes newsletter. And joining me, as he always does, is Jason Mikula, the publisher of the Fintech Business Weekly newsletter and now podcast. Yes, you are hearing that right. He now has his own podcast that he publishes in addition to this one, because I wasn't good enough for him, apparently. So Jason, this is your chance to explain yourself.
1: Yeah, you know, I uh, need to apologize for everyone who has listened to those for the uh, amazing (laughs) ambiance background noise uh, from from money 2020 I've already learned a valuable lesson which is book your quiet spaces well in advance uh, and triple check that you know how to use your equipment correctly, Uh, but thank you for that lovely introduction as always. Uh, I'm Jason Mikula, author of Fintech Business Weekly and apparently now a podcast um, and excited to talk about some interesting topics we have from you know, the past month. It has certainly been a news-filled one. Uh, also excited to announce we're joined by Sophia Goldberg, the author of recently released Field Guide to Global Payments. Sophia, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me both. I'm, I'm excited to be here, jam on payments, talk about my book and, uh, you know, yeah, excited to be here.
0: Awesome. Can you give us, uh, and more importantly, the audience, because obviously we know you and are huge fans of you, but can you give the audience a bit of a background on yourself and kind of, obviously you're a payments nerd first and foremost, but uh, kind of what have you been <laughs> up to lately?
2: Yeah, so definitely always start with payments nerd, obsessed with, I call it the, the physical mechanisms of the global economy, so I can also, you know, nerd out on like sugar commodities and, and weird, <laughs> hitting gritty topics like that, um, but found my way into payments five years ago, um, joined the team at, at Adyen across commercial and then product roles, um, really enjoyed getting into depth there. Um, Now I'm a a payments founder of a stealth startup based out of San Francisco in the payment space um, and started writing the book around the same time about a year and a half ago. And so just really love, um, you know helping make payments more accessible. Uh, People pay in all different ways globally and, and, um, you know, helping build some new ways nerdy about what's changing in the landscape which is a lot these days and documenting some of it for you guys in a book.
0: Awesome. That's so great. Well, thank you again for joining us. And um, we are going to take some time at the end to uh, grill Sophia on her book and the process of writing it. Um, Jason and I have both gotten a copy and it's spectacular. So highly encourage everyone to grab a copy and we'll be definitely talking a little bit more about that. So um, as usual with this podcast, what we're going to do is bounce around a few different Headlines from the last uh, month or so in fintech and crypto, and um, Jason, uh, as always, gets the honor of going first. And I have a feeling I know which topic he's going to pick to start us off with.
1: Yeah, it's I, I, it's starting to become weird how frequently I write and talk about crypto, given that you know it's not actually. Uh, Historically, a main focus of mine, but I mean, with with the monthly cadence, so much has happened since the last time we spoke, uh, and, and given our time constraints, I won't unpack all of these. Um, but I think last time we probably chatted a, a little bit about the collapse of the Terra stablecoin. Uh, since then, there have been you know a number of uh, sort of knock-on, directly and indirectly related impacts from that. You know, I think most notably. Uh, Celsius Network, uh, a so-called crypto lender, uh, or I would sort of characterize it as a sort of crypto shadow bank, uh, abruptly froze consumers' ability to withdraw or move funds uh, due to presumably liquidity challenges. Uh, Babel, which was a sort of similar company, did the same. Uh, BlockFi, also in that sort of crypto lending space, uh, secured a, depending on what headline you read, $250 million uh, credit line or quote unquote bailout uh, from FTX. Uh, Voyager, Voyager Digital, another company in the space, got a $485 million term loan uh, from a company associated with FTX founder uh, Sam Bankman Fried, a crypto trading firm called Alameda Research. Um, a lot of this was tied into a hedge fund called Three Arrows Capital, um, which is a very large hedge fund in the space, which appeared to run into solvency problems and defaulted on loans uh, to the aforementioned Voyager. Um, You know, what else? You had uh, another algorithmic stablecoin on the Tron blockchain, slip its peg, last I checked, trade as low as 96 cents on the dollar. And the uh, problematic Solana blockchain, you know, continue to suffer outages. So, I mean, it's, you know, we probably don't have time to delve into all of those different components. Um, but I mean, I think zooming out, you know, a, a lot of critics of the space, you know, me included, uh, anticipated that something like this would happen, you know, eventually and now it seems to be happening uh, and to a certain extent cascading. You know, clearly you're seeing some efforts uh, in the private sector to try to sort of stabilize companies that are facing liquidity pressure. But I feel like, you know, the crypto space, and this is cliche at this point, but is, you know, speed running and learning the lessons of, you know, banking in the traditional economic system that unfolded over hundreds of years, right? And uh, I mean, I think Alex has a comment on this later, but the, the FTX founder seems to be taking on a role of, you know, JP Morgan in the banking crises of, you know, the early 1900s and privately bailing out these other companies. Don't um, steal my
0: rant, Jason. That's I, I my, will not. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's that's a tease for later. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess sort of opening it up to discussion, you know, what, if anything, can you know crypto companies learn from this? What lessons uh, or warnings should traditional financial companies, banks, uh, potentially be taking from this? What lessons should regulators be taking from this? Um, you know, I want to start off with with Sophia, particularly you know, given your payments expertise and perspective. Any you know, lessons, takeaways, warnings, you know, from sort of your vantage point on some of this chaos that's been unfolding in the last, you know, four or six weeks?
2: Yeah, I, I think um, I'm really worried about the pendulum swinging to overregulation here. I think like um, crypto often gets talked about as, you know, the future of the financial systems and everything like that. But like, the financial systems that we have today are hundreds of years in the making and some of the the truisms you know crypto obviously can't escape right like um you know a run on the banks right and the liquidity problems that come from that and i think a lot of consumers were really enamored by you know the high uh, interest accounts and the yield they could get and Obviously, we're seeing the downfall of a lot of that not being, you know, baked into reality and being more like Ponzi schemes. Um, and so, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how the pendulum swings. Of you know, being ungovernable isn't a good thing. Um, and I I like to bring up one of my favorite monetary economic um, concepts, the Mundell Fleming trilemma, which is about um, you know, a government or in the say, a monetary system, this is usually for like currencies and fiat, but you can either have um, capital mobility, exchange rate control and management or monetary autonomy. You can only pick two and you can't have them all. And so I think it'll be interesting to see how, like some of the classic things we know about, you know, how to move money around or control a economy, whether that's a, an individual protocol level, um, can kind of learn from each other a little more. Um, but I'm mainly worried about, you know, as soon as you start messing with consumers, regulators will come in hard and fast. So interested to see what happens.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, trilemma is a word I wrote down as you were talking. I love that. And I, I think that's such a good observation, right? I mean, to Jason's point, there's a, a relearning of a lot of things that we've known for a long time, but you're applying it to sort of a new set of technologies and a new set of use cases, and quite frankly, a new set of builders and consumers that don't necessarily know those things. And so it is interesting watching that all kind of play itself back out. You know, the other point I would just add before we jump to the next topic is, you know, Jason mentioned the sort of cascading nature of what's happening right now. And I guess I sort of thought this somewhat instinctively, but I'd never quite sort of crystallized in my head exactly how this works, but what someone on Twitter pointed out, and I, forg- I forgive me, I can't remember who, who it was who said this, but it was a really good observation that one of the principal differences between the traditional banking system and like the DeFi ecosystem at the moment, and this doesn't have to necessarily be true in the future, but it has been so far, is that you know when you look at traditional banks, yes, they sort of have relationships between them and they move money around and they're all part of the system, But fundamentally, a big part of what they do is they move capital over to other businesses, right? And so they loan money to farms and corporations and other types of capital producing, cash flow producing entities. And that's a large part of like the role that they play in the economy. And what's interesting when you sort of strip away a lot of the complexity around DeFi is that you look at all these companies and they all move money between each other, but not into any other enterprises outside of that, right? And so to the point about this problem cascading and we're starting to find out like, wow, three arrows capital, like they owe everybody money. What the hell's going on? I mean, that I think is indicative of the fact that it wasn't really clear uh, quite to the extent that it is now just how much of an interrelationship there was within DeFi and how little sort of scaffolding in the broader economy it had, right? And so one problem in one place tends to have these massive ripple effects. So I will be curious, I guess, going back to your point, Sophia, as things evolve and we go into sort of a new uh, world around uh, DeFi and crypto, how much of this gets integrated into the broader economy? And what impact does that have? And what is the role of regulation when we start to do that? I mean, part of the thing I'm actually okay with so far as it relates to DeFi and crypto is, well, there have definitely been some UDAP type concerns that I've seen, especially in the lending high yield space. For the most part, people who are getting hurt in this space are the ones that were taking big risks and looking for big return in this space. So it's been somewhat self-contained, but The next time we go through this, if it's integrated into the broader economy in new ways, I hope that it comes with a prudent amount of regulation, because to your point, when consumers get hurt, that tends to be where a lot of things kind of change.
2: Yeah. And I think especially on some of the like high APY stuff, I think people didn't realize how big of a risk they were taking. I think that's part of what I've been surprised by. It's like, if it looks too good to be true, it is too good to be true. And apparently that financial advice is not permeated to everyone, um, especially those who are like very crypto bullish. And like, mm-hmm. just cause they say it's a stable coin or it's pegged, and maybe you read the white paper, though I think a lot of people probably don't, you know, that 6% or that 19% is coming from somewhere. Um so That's I, totally I think terrible. like the, the marketing around it is, is probably gonna see some interesting regulation too.
0: I think that's such a good point. And and just to tee off on the one thing you said, and then we should move on to the next topic is the whole, we have a white paper on this. It drives me absolutely out of my mind because I've looked at a few of those white papers and, you know, I, I do this for a living. And so I like to think that I'd be able to sort of parse some of these things, but they are typically very dense and yet built on a set of, I think, as we've seen in the case of some of these protocols, not always totally logical or safe assumptions. And so it's like both dense and inaccessible to someone trying to understand it, but also not academically rigorous in the way that I think the term white paper would tend to uh, connote. So that I find that pretty interesting. Jason, you look like something to say.
1: uh, Last comment, and, and we can move on. I mean, I think that's you know to some extent intentional right like this totally. is so this is so complicated that you know you wouldn't understand it just trust us it generates this yield because it does all right. this cool stuff it's in the right. white paper and it becomes almost you know legitimacy by complexity and complexity by design um, totally. but I, i'm sure we could talk about that for eons i think uh alex you're gonna take us through our next one on uh, Klarna's fundraising travails
0: yeah, yeah, so Travail's is a good way to describe it, right? So um, Klarna, which um, I guess I kind of forget sometimes, is actually a pretty old company. I think it was founded in 2007, so it's been around for a while, right? Um, for most of its life, it's been a relatively uh, low-funded enterprise, right? Most of, most of its growth historically has been through just sort of slow, organic kind of um, building up their, their business in Europe. And it wasn't really until you know two, three, four years ago when they started taking in massive amounts of capital, right around the same time that buy now, pay later as a term sort of exploded, and that VCs started just like pouring this insane amount of money into the space. And um, you know, I think it was sort of capped off by, I think SoftBank was one of the last um, big investors to pour money into Klarna. And at the time that took them to a $46 billion valuation, which if I'm remembering right, put them second only behind uh, Stripe in terms of private company valuations. And so they were riding very, very high. And it was, I think, somewhat unusual at that time to see sort of bearish takes about Klarna or about just the buy now, pay later space more generally because I think roughly around that same time a firm went public, their initial IPO pop and price was very high and the space was just very, very hot. but. I think what we've learned since then is that um, those valuations may have gotten a little out of control, and I think even though we felt that at the time, we didn't really have a lot of like hard data or evidence to demonstrate that hey, this level of valuation is not sustainable. We do now, right? So as the Wall Street Journal has been uh, reporting pretty uh, consistently and ruthlessly, uh, Klarna is having a really tough time raising another round of funding, right? So um, I think as I've sort of followed the reporting on this, they've gone from going back to their investors and saying, okay, how about a down round valued at like $30 billion? And their investors were like, nope. And then, okay, how about 20 or 15? And the latest reporting from the Wall Street Journal is that they are seeking yet have not yet gotten, Uh, new funding at a $10 billion valuation, which is a huge, huge decrease from where they were not that long ago. And I guess the the question that I have um, for both of you that I'd love your thoughts on is kind of two parts. One, um, what do you think Klarna is actually worth? Like when you look at it as a business, because they have grown a lot and they do have a large base of merchants, they have a large base of customers. I do think there are sort of legitimate, uh, sort of sustainable uh, products within the space that obviously younger consumers in particular really like. And then sort of more generally, what do you think the impact is going to be on the the buy now, pay later space? I mean, I've talked to a a number of um, banks, uh, particularly folks who work in the credit card parts of banks. And they've been very kind of dragging their feet on buy now, pay later, right? And saying, yeah, we're not that worried about it. Maybe we'll go in and we'll add this little feature that lets people convert payments after the fact into installment loans. But for the most part, we're not going to like worry too much about this. And in a way, they kind of have a point, right? I mean, buy now, pay later is now sort of hitting this wall and this slowdown. So what's sort of your overall take on where we're going to end up with buy now, pay later now that we're kind of coming down off the hype? Sophia, maybe you want to go first.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I don't know where we're going to end up after the high, but I always like to take a step back and be like, there's still a decacorn as a payment method that doesn't own the checkout real estate. Like that's still impressive. <laughs> right, right. Um, so all of these, like, you know, we talk about, you know, payments multiples and things like that. I think it's maybe some folks understanding um, the economics of payments are not the same for every payments company. And so looking at, you know, um, maybe the, the MDR, the merchant discount rate, what a merchant pays to offer this payment method is high, but what is their actual take rate right out of that? What is the risk they hold? Um, I think someone like a Klarna is in a lot of countries and underwriting an individual in the Nordics is a lot easier than in the US because um, you can you know, have a, an ID that you can see you know the financial health of an individual so easily but in the US, you don't want to do a hard credit check because that affects your credit because we've got a whole different messy system here. Um, So I I don't know where it goes. I think there is great utility, especially for like online retail merchants in having this option. But I think we did get to a point that was comical. Like we've all seen screenshots of a checkout page with like 14 payment methods. Um, And you know there is this battle amongst the BNPL players, but there's also this battle for checkout. And so, um, I think like the music was going to stop at some point. Um, I think there's still great utility, but I, I was never bullish on it. Like being Gen Z's version of a credit card and like credit cards waning with the millennial population or anything like that. Um, so yeah, who who knows where it goes from there, but I still like to say like a 10 billion valuation private company. It's still pretty honest work.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, that there are some interesting components to Klarna versus other players in the space <clears throat> that are uh, advantageous, right? Klarna is a bank in Sweden, right? So it does have access to lower cost uh, source of funding in the form of deposits. It also owns uh, Sofort, which is a payment network in, uh, in Europe. And these are, you know, things that, you know, a firm in the US scenario uh, certainly doesn't have, you know, uh, after pay in combination with Square and Cash App, you can see some of those similar synergies. I think, you know, if you look at, you know, medium to longer term, how do you build, you know, a more sustainable differentiated business? It can't be just what I refer to as sort of monoline buy now, pay later, where the only thing you're doing is offering, you know, split pay, you know, that uh, to me very clearly doesn't seem like something that's going to be uh, defensible and sustainable. I mean, even now, right? Like if you look at any of the valuations of the Australian uh, public BMPL companies, they're all down like 90 plus percent on market cap, you know, since they went public. I mean, looking at at Klarna specifically, you know, they did about one and a half billion in revenue in 2021. So if you want to be, you know uh, somewhat pessimistic and, and apply the sort of uh, compressed revenue multiple, you know, call it five-ish x. Oh so yeah, you're talking like a five to ten billion valuation um, with that very crude back of envelope math, you know to, to Sophia's point, like the, the economics and the quality of that revenue, do vary based on what be you know what exact services that BNPL company is providing, where it sits in the stack, how it does risk management, what its cost of funds are, et cetera. So, I mean, I think you know uh, what's happening with Klarna, and you know more broadly in that BNPL sector, I would call it a um, rationalization, uh, or a if you want to be more blunt, like a come to Jesus. On uh, some of these valuations, uh, but I think you know at the at the global perspective, I think Klarna is is generally pretty well positioned versus competitors, um, but there are those local market adaptations. Um, which I'm sure they're still learning, right? Klarna expanded, used that VC money that it came into starting in you know 2020 to expand very rapidly and very aggressively. And again, to, to Sophia's point, you know, underwriting and managing credit risk in the U.S. Uh, and I believe Klarna is planning on expanding to Mexico. You know, those those are are two very different countries, and they're very different than you know where where Klarna sort of has its roots in the Nordic. So I'm I'm interested to see if they push forward with that plan or if they sort of retrench and concentrate on markets they're more familiar with. I mean, Alex, what is uh, what is your takeaway?
0: Yeah, I think all that's right, right? I mean, it's the, the international expansion one is tough because you don't get a lot of economies of scale from doing that right it's like you have to start over you don't have data you don't have existing relationships with borrowers you don't for the most part have merchant partnerships you don't have relationships built with regulators you have to start from scratch every time right so i I am sympathetic when Klarna says well yeah we have really high loss rates in these uh you know last couple quarters but it's because we've expanded aggressively internationally i think there's definitely some truth to that i think that the challenge for Klarna is in figuring out, you know, going back to kind of that, that mega point, like what, what is their sort of path forward, right? Do they want to try to pivot into becoming more of a consumer facing brand where they control the shopping and commerce experience and, try to make a little less money by taking risk on the back end from like a lending payments perspective? Do they want to try to sort of focus more on merchants and building out a a bigger stack to enable merchants and provide more value propositions there? I think there are a lot of interesting directions they can go in. And when the money is flowing in, it's easy to sort of play all the hands at the blackjack table simultaneously. But when you have to cut back, you have to sort of figure out where strategically you're going to place your bets. And I'm I'm fascinated to see that with Klarna. I think the other just sort of macro point to make, going back to what Sophia said is, I am really curious, almost anthropologically, to try to understand, and we won't know the answer to this for a while, but there's a generation of young consumers who are having a very different set of initial payment and credit experiences than I had when I was 18, 19, right? Like I'm old enough to remember that like shopping online with a credit card used to be terrifying. Right, Like not only was it not possible in a lot of cases, but in the times that were, you were just taking your life into your own hands every time you type that number in. And now you're not getting your card out of your wallet. You're not typing a number in, you're not taking any risk of like delivery or the payment not being accepted. It's just like, boom, tell us which way you wanna pay for it without even really having to pay for it. And we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks when your first payment is due. That's just a fundamentally different way of uh, thinking about payments and credit not necessarily better or worse, but different. And I'll be really curious to see how that evolves and how those expectations carry into those consumers' uh, older lives when traditionally they might be more interested in a credit card or some other mechanism of payment, but they've had sort of these formative experiences. Sophia, I don't know if you have a thought on that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it it kind of also goes back to, to the crypto point of like how are things being like marketing is a huge part of BNPL and BNPL agreements between merchants and the providers is the quote unquote up funnel messaging for the cart conversion for everything. So like is is that predatory? Can that be? In the same way, like when I was in college, you know, the dining hall was always full of people hawking credit cards at us. <laughs> um <laughs> and so there is, you know, some some parallels there. Um yeah, I, I think from an anthropological perspective, it's it's gonna be super interesting.
0: Awesome, um, well, I think we should, that's actually a good segue because we had one other uh, buy now, pay later topic that we wanted to hit. And I think we can make this one our last one before we get into some some rants at the end. So Jason, why don't you uh, take us into this one?
1: Yeah, I mean, speaking of BMPL and its sort of role um, relationship with the merchants, you know, I'm sure, Pretty much everyone who listens to this show is hopefully aware that uh, Apple announced its intention to offer its own buy now pay later uh, via Apple Pay, which is going to be dubbed Apple Pay Later. Uh, and this is something that you know has been teased through you know reporting from Bloomberg, I think Wall Street Journal, and, and it has clearly been in the works for a while. You know, I think the most interesting uh, component of the announcement is sort of what was announced and sort of what remains to be seen. So I think, you know, one of the bigger takeaways was that Apple uh, is going to take on more of sort of the responsibility and I suppose liability for offering this split pay functionality through a new subsidiary, uh, Apple Financing LLC. And Apple itself will handle the underwriting uh, as well as providing the financing. Now there is still some relationship with a bank partner on the Apple card, Goldman Sachs, um, which my understanding is primarily in order to access uh, MasterCard payment credentials. So there is a little bit of ambiguity in uh, how this is going to work in the back end. So exactly like Apple's relationship, is Apple providing the capital off its own balance sheet or might there be some other you know, source of funding that they tap to actually fund these loans? Uh, the role that Goldman will play if the processor that they use for Apple Card uh, core card is involved, which I suspect it is, but I haven't seen any reporting confirming that. Um, and I think you know, most, most importantly, um, how the economics of this might end up working for Apple and for the other you know, vendors involved in offering it. I mean I think with that intro, you know, Sophia, given your payments expertise, you know, do you have any insight into what might actually be happening in the back end as far as how, you know, if I go and tap my Apple Pay at a merchant, I'm at REI buying some camping equipment and I want to split that payment sort of mechanically, what's actually happening on the back end and how how the economics of that might work for for Apple and the other partners in the value chain there?
2: Ooh, um, I'm not sure I like, I have like in my mind how, the, how the, the, the tech would work if I built it, but they have smarter people than me working on it, and I'm sure I'm wrong. Um, but I, mean, I think this is just a brilliant move. I mean, through Apple Pay and the Apple Card, they have so much consumer spend data and that can foray so well into understanding a consumer for for underwriting like we talked about with the BNPLs and you know the pain points in lots of markets of doing that um and it's also not their first rodeo with uh, with lending i am a big fan of the citizen one loan program for for new expensive iPhones um and that was a, oh has always been a slick underwriting experience um i think it'll be i mean I think high level, I think it's a great idea. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see um, how merchants take to this versus other options. Um, I think it kind of like checkout getting crunched again, like I mentioned before of, you know, how does a consumer think about this? Like from a consumer perspective, is it just because like I can face ID from bed to buy this pair of cowboy boots really quickly? Like, which, you know, can you can you make that easier conversion um yeah I I think you know already in Apple pay they already have your billing address they already have information about you they have your spending behavior um they have all of your phone you know tracking data all of this other stuff to have this picture of you um so I I think it'll be a really slick and fast both underwriting process approval process and maybe checkout process too
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think building on that point, you know, one thing that's really interesting about Apple getting into this in a serious way is that um, I've always sort of thought of like buy now, pay later as really trying to push the boundary on where is the point of integration with the shopper and with the merchant and sort of continuing to push that deeper and deeper. And, um, you know a lot of the battles lately have been playing out on the checkout page obviously and as sophia kind of colorfully illustrated it sort of looks like a nascar uh co- you know car with all of the different logos on it like it's getting a little complex and a little crowded the thing that's interesting to me about apple is and they're not shy of using this power they control the user interface right like they control the ios ecosystem and so they can go a layer deeper even then the integrations that an Affirm firm or Klarna has built with merchants. And so it's just a very different way of getting into the checkout process and the payment stream. And as a consumer, kind of going to Sophia's point, I love using... Apple Pay where I'm doing Face ID, it's, um, you know, automatically going, hey, we see there's a place for you to plug in a credit card information. Why don't we just Face ID and we'll just drop Apple Card into that? Like my Apple Card gets way more transactional business than it should by virtue of Apple's ability to sneak it into the payment checkout process when otherwise I would probably use my Capital One card, right? Because I want those rewards, not the Apple rewards, but they have an ability to kind of insert themselves there. And I would think that Buy Now Pay Later is going to just sort of further expand the options that they can present when doing that and increase the overall level of consumer adoption. The other point, I think, kind of going back to what Sophia was saying, is I'm I'm fascinated by project breakout, which is what this is a part of, right? And Jason referenced it in talking about the fact that Apple is going to be doing this without Goldman Sachs, and has actually spun up a subsidiary business that has gotten lending licenses at a state level in order to be able to lend this money directly rather than going through a bank, that fascinates me, right? Because Apple has clearly said, we are okay taking on a greater level of operational complexity, a greater level of risk, although to your point, Sophia, they can underwrite that risk very well with all the data they have, and a great deal more regulatory and reputational risk than we're normally used to doing in order to, I presume, seize more of the unit economics for this type of business than they normally can through partners, right? And so it's a pretty interesting shift in terms of Apple's risk versus reward calculus in terms of where they want to make money and where they want to take risks. It's not just about selling iPhones anymore. It's about making money doing lending and payment process and some of these things that they haven't traditionally dived in with both feet on. So I'm very curious to see how that goes and Speaking to the regulatory point, you know, I would have to think that the director of the CFPB is just sort of licking his lips, sort of just waiting to dive into the the lending component of this, because he's not exactly a huge fan of big tech to begin with. And Apple is opening the door right up to have conversations around, well, okay, how are you underwriting these consumers? What data points are you using? Is all of that data... um, you know, governed by the Fair Credit Reporting Act? Do consumers have the ability to see why they were declined and dispute that data? And when big tech leverages all the data they have on consumers to do credit underwriting, they open themselves up to those conversations. And I don't think those are gonna be super pleasant to go through. So it is a big risk for Apple and one that I think is pretty interesting they've decided to take.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's exactly right. I mean, in hearing you talk about it, Alex, that the part that stands out the most to me is that uh, streamlining of the experience or the reduction of friction, right? And, and Apple Pay historically in the US has actually had rather low adoption. I mean, I came across a number of different survey data points, but the one that uh, is jumping to mind now is something like Only 6% of people who had loaded a payment card into Apple Pay are actually using it when they're able to. And so looking at the Apple Pay later announcement, I was sort of of two minds about it. One was, okay, is your universe of people who might use Apple's BMPL limited to those who already use Apple Pay? Or is this an attempt to encourage more people to adopt and start using it? Um, And I suspect it's, you know, probably the latter. Uh, And then to your point around the user experience and being able to do this in a really friction-free way, I mean, that was one of the original value props of BNPL, you know, at an e-commerce checkout, right? I can finance this transaction in many cases, putting in no more fields than if I were just checking out regularly, you know, and so that was a very streamlined experience here, in a sense, that could be next level, right? I'm buying something on my phone. Uh, and now I can split pay essentially with just a touch ID or a face ID. I mean, I think the counterpoint risk for Apple is, you know, that merchant integration, which was part of the sort of flywheel of BMPL did two key things, at least early on. One, it provided a much higher merchant discount rate of you know six, seven percent. Now that has come down significantly as more companies have entered the space. But presumably, if Apple's not integrating directly with merchants, you know, their take rate is standard, you know, the standard interchange, the standard MDR. And if the partner they're using to handle the back end is Goldman plus MasterCard. I assume that that would be a Durban capped interchange on a virtual debit card that's being issued. Um, so I struggle to see how, I mean, obviously, we don't, we don't know all of these details. So some of this is, is definitely a speculation. But on a standalone basis, I kind of struggle to see how the economics are attractive. But Apple has, you know, the uh financial resources to operate on a much longer time horizon as they start to sort of build out these different components of of their ecosystem so definitely something um something i think will be interesting to watch i mean sophia any any final points before we uh transition to our next topic
2: no i i well maybe just the final one is like all of this on top of the like tap to pay capability of using your iPhone as a terminal like right. i think we're if they play it right we you know apple's going to be really interesting for the next decade i think in financial services
0: yeah kind of competing with klarna and affirm and afterpay and square all sort of simultaneously i mean again going back to the blackjack analogy they can play a lot of hands at the same time with the the war chest that they have so i i think that'll be fascinating especially when you contrast it to the sort of tough fundraising environment we're in now where fintechs won't necessarily be able to bring huge bags of money to the table like they would have a year ago. So it'll be fascinating. Um, With that, let's go ahead and transition to sort of our final uh segment which is our um as listeners of this podcast know our can't let it go segment where we get the opportunity to rant about subjects that are fintech or non-fintech related um we won't spend a ton of time on each of these and I will go ahead and kick us off so my can't let it go topic is as Jason referenced at the beginning uh FTX's uh co-founder and CEO Sam Bankman-Fried who apparently is the modern version of JP. Morgan. Um, I guess the the sort of reporting so far has been that he's talking to everyone in the ecosystem and that he's writing checks to lots of people in the ecosystem. He, um, is trying to extend a credit line or a bailout to uh, BlockFi, which interestingly, according to the reporting, uh, puts the interests of consumers and the depositors who've been using BlockFi ahead of the companies that have invested Uh, in uh, BlockFi, which apparently their investors are not wild about and are trying to make a counteroffer to get out of. So that was pretty interesting to me. Um, Obviously, there was Voyager uh, that he also, through a different uh, company, uh, put some liquidity into. And so I guess my overall take on this is that he seems to be deploying a great deal of his personal wealth and uh, his company's resources, of which they seem to have more than anyone else in the crypto ecosystem, which I don't totally understand, but I guess that's a a episode for another day, um, into trying to prop up this ecosystem and maintain consumer confidence in it, which on the one hand, I find a little disturbing in the sense that like, obviously there's a, a clear financial upside to anyone who's made a lot of money in crypto to keep sort of this belief going within the ecosystem. And yet at the same time, you could say roughly the same thing about John Pierpoint uh, Morgan 100 years ago, right? And so I'll, I'll be disturbed, I suppose, if 100 years from now, my grandkids and great-grandkids are talking about uh, SBF the same way that we talk about JP Morgan today. But I guess that's something we'll have to just wait and see. So uh, with that, um, Jason, I'm going to give you the floor for your rant.
1: Yeah, one, one comment on, on yours, which was after the 1907 crisis that J.P. Morgan uh, and his fellow wealthy bankers, you know, privately bailed out, there was uh, essentially like a congressional investigation, the outcome uh, of which laid the foundations for the creation of the Federal Reserve System. So, oh, my God,
0: I'm so glad you said that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if we'll see the same uh, history repeat itself here, but uh, certainly something to keep an eye out on. I Absolutely. mean, my... My quick uh, can't let it go is uh, execs need to do a better job of when the hard times come, you know, dealing with them uh, with dignity. And I'm talking specifically uh, about layoffs. So, you know, the last couple of years or really in fintech, the last decade, you know, things have generally been positive up and to the right funding around increased valuation, you know, hiring a zillion engineers, et cetera you know, that, you know, unfortunately feels like it's reversing or correcting a bit at the moment. And we have seen, and I will uh, not name any names uh, besides the most infamous example, which is better uh, the mortgage refi company. Um, But with the layoffs that have been coming, you know, over the course of the last four or six weeks, and they've seemed to be been accelerating, uh, there have been numerous stories of uh, employees, you know, finding out in, you know, what i would argue are you know unacceptable ways you know being locked out of uh, their systems having offers that were accepted uh, rescinded and being left high and dry it's you know uh, clearly it is uh, a challenging time across the ecosystem uh, but when you read in some examples where companies have actually recently raised money uh, and they're still laying off 10 20% of their workforce in ways that are you know not always the most um uh thoughtful just a a point to stop reflect think about when this storm passes and it will it might be 12 months it might be 18 months what is the reputation that your company and your executive team you know want to have and that will be built in part by how you treat your employees when times are tough so that is my uh that's my mini rant hr oriented rant for for today um Sophia, do you have any uh, can't can't let it go topics? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's hear it.
2: Uh, first off, I, I wanted to to mention on yours, Jason. I think um, I am continually surprised how low the bar is as a as a recent founder. I think a lot about you know building a company, not just a product, and and the HR side of things, and like. It is really grueling to see the way some people are being laid off so I good good rant topic. Um, Mine will be brief so I don't get bleeped to high heaven. Um, If I kept talking I would be swearing a lot. Um, FinTech regulation good. Uh, My body FinTech regulation bad. I think the Supreme Court last week um, really took the the air out of a lot of our lungs, and it's it's been tough and rough and I am behind on FinTech news because Uh, working on mobilizing and coming to terms with things and emotionally processing. And so uh, that is the very, very short and sweet rant on, um, you know, abortion is healthcare.
0: Absolutely, yeah, no, totally agree. And I'm glad you mentioned that one. I mean, I had the same reaction on Friday. It was difficult to work or focus on anything else. And I think it drives home the point that there are human things that matter a lot more than the stuff that we talk about on this podcast. I think there are also a lot of things that I'm seeing from fintech and financial services that are positive in reaction to this. A lot of companies are updating their policies and their benefits to try to provide more comprehensive reproductive healthcare benefits to employees. Um, J.P. Morgan Chase, I think, just announced that they were going to cover travel expenses. Uh, Alloy, a fintech company based in New York that I've gotten to know, has uh, been way out ahead on this issue in terms of updating their benefits. Yeah. There are things people can do, and I would encourage all the... Um, you know, employees and executives at companies that listen to this to um, take a hard look at those because it's really important.
2: Yeah, we uh, we interview in person in California and have open roles if anyone wants to come apply.
0: Awesome. That is a great pitch. And um, so on that subject, we want to give Sophia the opportunity to uh, talk a little bit about her book. So she was. um, gracious enough to uh, provide uh, an advanced copy for us to to read. And first of all, it's spectacular. The book is called The Field Guide to Global Payments. Um, I learned a ton reading it, um, and I've worked in financial services and payments for a while, tons of stuff that I didn't know or didn't understand well enough. And this book provided a really clear guide to a lot of that. So Sophia, maybe you can start by just telling the audience a bit about the book, what it's about, what it covers.
2: Yeah, so the field guide to global payments is the book I wished I had five years ago when I started at Adyen. Um, that's really how how I talk about it and the why behind you know sitting down grumpily during a global pandemic and going like, fine, I'll write it myself, um, and getting over the imposter syndrome of can I write this book? Should I write this book? Um, and and so I think really, it's payments are complex. Um, payments means a million different things to a million different people, and. There's so many different norms in different countries, so many different payment methods, um, Mm -hmm. so many different core systems that once you can understand those, it's so much easier to um, understand how payments work in a different country or with a different business model. And so really, how could I provide in a really, um, I think, conversational way, um, in in a written way, some of the trainings I would give to new hires, um, some talks I'd given at things like the payments education forum. Forum, Payments at that conference, um, and distill it into something that's referenceable, that you could have on your desk, that you could send to a new hire, anything like that.
0: No, it's it definitely achieves that goal. And I, I think one thing in particular that your book seems to fill an important niche on that I, I had read a couple other payments books. You referenced a couple of them at the beginning of your book that like there's a there's a little bit of a library that people should have when it comes to researching payments. But one of the, the things that your book seemed to do a, a particularly good job of and have a good focus on is the global nature of payments, right? And there's a lot of these, as you say, payment systems, and then the connections between different systems, right? Like I didn't know what a correspondent bank was before I read your book, and now I know and have a slightly better understanding of that. So I guess I'd be curious for your take on like, what did you learn working at Adyen and sort of getting a look at this global payment system that informed the way that you uh, sort of approached writing a global book?
2: Yeah, I I think for me, it was realizing that there's so many payment methods in different countries that look the same when you Mm -hmm. get to the 30,000 foot level. So that's why I created this quote, unquote, like payment method taxonomy, I call it, of how can I equip someone with one or two global examples? Um, But then when you go to, you know, the nth country and see something, you're like, oh, that reminds me of virtual accounts in Indonesia or OXO in Mexico or something like that. And so I break it down into cards that, you know, at least in the US, we all know and love Mm -hmm. Um, bank-based methods, which I kind of break into direct debit, online banking, real-time payments, checks, which I have the unpopular opinion that I like love checks, (laughs) (laughs) Um, then, you know, delayed payments. So whether that's installments or factoring or BNPL Mm -hmm. um, wallets of which there's, you know, then a sub taxonomy, I go into um, cash and ATM payments, which at least in the US, we don't think of cash for online payments, but there's a lot of methods globally of ways to accept a cash payment for an online purchase. Um, wow. And then I had to write a chapter on crypto because it is 2022.
0: It is, it absolutely is. And I, I guess I was curious, um, we already sort of touched on kind of your perspective on crypto, but like as a payment mechanism specifically, sort of where do you come down on the bullish versus bearish scale?
2: Yeah, um, I am bullish on crypto, bearish for payments, at least for consumer payments. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think even like treasury mechanisms, like all the liquidity stuff we talked about earlier, um, you know, the, the hardcore side of, of payments and correspondent banking is a ton. You need a ton of liquidity for things like Forex, um, which we just don't have in the system yet. So Mm -hmm. I think from a consumer payments standpoint, we're a very far way away know we treat it like gambling or securities or an investment um and you know you don't really want to buy your pizza with that right the bitcoin pizza example i think is famous for a reason um and i think even on like the merchant acceptance side some stuff i i have talked to lots of large companies about is like you know how do you deal with the fx like if they don't have opex in ethereum they need to get it out and use something else and so Um, I think stability is a problem, liquidity is a problem, but I think just like the, how do you make an accounting team at, you know, one of the largest retailers in the world comfortable with this, um, we're not quite there yet, um, for like remittances, I think it's interesting for cross-border, I think it's interesting, um, but unseating SWIFT will be very hard.
0: Yeah, difficult. That's, that's totally fair. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask about before we let you go is, um, you kind of referenced this pandemic pandemic process writing this book, uh, you know, I would assume sort of locked in an apartment. Um, This seems like a hellish endeavor in the best of times to say nothing of writing it during the pandemic. Obviously, you're in the process of starting a new company. I mean, I don't know where you got all the time, but can you talk us through the process of writing it and then publishing it, which I know you published, uh, you self-published. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about that.
2: Totally. Um, for for me, it was like, I always need some hobby to pour an insane amount of energy into. Um, <laughs> I did take on a bit much with a full-time job, this and, uh, and a company idea I was incubating on the side, which is now my, my full-time endeavor. Um, I, I think it was not a sure thing for the first few months I worked on it. It was this mm. fever dream of like, I'd like to write a book. And it was <laughs> when I hit about 15,000 words that I started to realize, oh, this really could be something. And so I started it out with dictate on my iPad and just like talking to the wall, which I'm I'm very glad I have no windows in my living room for a neighbor to see <laughs> me just <laughs> gesticulating about card rails and the networks and scheme fees and um and and kind of talked through some of the the trainings I would usually give and the things that I think are more nitty gritty that I thought I had found an interesting way to make really accessible and understandable. Um, And I think from there, I then went back to basics and started with a table of contents and shopped that around with friends at, you know, some of the largest online retailers and at other payments companies and at Adyen. And um, once I had that, it felt very doable. It's like, okay, this month, I'm going to try and write the crypto chapter. Like this month, I'm going to try and write... Um, you know the subscriptions chapter, which was maybe the easiest chapter of all of them for me to write because I'd given lots of talks on subscription payment uh, mm-hmm. payments before. Um, and on self publishing, it was actually way harder than I thought. Really? Um, people, yeah, people talk about like it's very accessible these days, which it really is accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean it's easy, and I can right. kind of completed the two. And so. Uh-huh. I had to, you know, I wanted the reason I wanted to self-publish was I wanted to control timeline. I sure. wanted to control what the cover looked like. I wanted it's a to gorgeous
0: cover, by the way. I have to compliment Thank you I love the cover so much.
2: Thank you. Um, it's an artist named Mark Wagner. I found who cuts up dollar bills and makes these phenomenal collages.
0: Oh, so cool.
2: Yeah. And so I had a hard time picking the piece of art. This one's called Curious George, and it's, you know. George Washington from a a dollar bill looking over a hedge of dollar bill parts. Um, But I had to, you know, I wanted to control these things which you don't have if you do a publishing deal. Um, And they also get royalties. I now realize I wish I gave them royalties (laughs) to do this because I had to find um, an editor. I had to find a formatter. So like, you know, to get from Google Doc to actual book format is a lot of work. Um, Making an index is a lot of work. I ended up DIYing. So sorry if some stuff's not in the index that you wished was there. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I I think it was just a lot of project, which I needed also. I was an extrovert living alone in a pandemic with a dog. I needed a project um, (laughs) and this was a fun one.
0: Oh man, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing some of those details. And uh, last question before we let you go, where can people buy your
2: book? Wherever books are sold. Nice. So I'm very proud. Go to your local bookshop, ask them to order it for you, um, bookshop.org. If you buy it on Amazon, leave a review, please, um, unless you hate it, and then just message me privately.
0: <laughs> or just keep it to yourself. That's totally fine. Or keep That's it to yourself. Weird, yeah. Weird people who might not like Sophia's book. It is wonderful. Uh, thank you for writing it, and thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on. This was fun.